Here we are in this study of the book of Mark. And as we have been, as I have been studying through and going through, it's reminded me of something that I've noticed before. All of us can probably relate to this, that there's somebody in our our life that we want what's good for. Just like uh, we were talking about how our heavenly father wants what's good for us. Jesus said that he came to give us life and life in the full, to the full, abundant life. And so there are people in our lives that we care about, that we want to see what's best for them. And uh, just like I imagine that sometimes God would want to, he gives us direction, he gives us instruction, he tells us uh, the best way to go about things, but he, he never forces our hand. He leaves it in our court. And so I thought about that and how we approach dealing with others. And as I've studied through the scriptures before, I've noticed a pattern in the way that Jesus deals with others. Uh, And for people who are in need, people who are coming to him for help, people who are uh, enslaved by sin, his first response, his default response is compassion, not condemnation compassion, not condemnation. And I've tried to remember that as I encounter people that I want to see what's best for them and see people making poor choices or doing destructive things that when Jesus came into their lives, his first response was compassion to help, to do something compassionate and helpful, not condemnation. In fact, he reserved his condemnation for those religious uh, hypocrites, the people who talked a good talk but didn't live it out in their lives. The people that were broken, the people that were hurting, the people that were in need, his first response was compassion. So it just reminded me that whenever I encounter someone, my first response, I want it to be compassion. So today, that is what we're talking about. We're going to be talking about compassion. And what we're going to see in this detailed look at a particular scene in the life of Jesus is that compassion results in action. When we have compassion on someone, when we want to do good to them, then that is just going to result in us taking action action, doing something that will benefit others. We see this in Jesus' life, and as his followers, we should see it throughout our congregations and throughout his people, throughout the people who claim to be a part of the kingdom of God. So, my challenge at the end is going to be to take an action that is rooted in compassion, to take action that is rooted in compassion. So, let's look at it together. We're going to look at a particular passage, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. But then we're going to go back and kind of bring all of this context together. Remember, this series, Things Set Right, is looking in detail at the gospel of Mark. So, I want to pull together some themes and see how it all leads to this point in the scriptures. So, let's look at it together. This is Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and in fact, it might be helpful, if you haven't already, to pull out an actual physical Bible, because we're going to be looking a lot through Mark chapter 1 through 3, and it might be just a little bit easier to have it right in front of you. So, let's look at it together. I will read Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. 
Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, Come and stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, Does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life or destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once, the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that you have preserved it and that you inspired uh, Mark to write down the preaching of Peter, Peter's eyewitness testimony to what Jesus did and said. I pray that as we look at it, that you would speak to every person who is listening and watching and that you will show them exactly what they need to know, tell them exactly what they need to hear in order to do exactly what you have in mind for them. We declare our willingness to be uh, people who are available to you, open to you, listening to you, and willing to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So what I want to do is um, bring you kind of up to speed as to what I've been noticing as I'm looking at this passage. And I think it'll be helpful, uh, uh, the scripture up into this passage in the Gospel of Mark. And I think it'll be helpful for you to understand and to be looking out for these kind of clues in the text as well and give you kind of the big picture that leads to this scene. You may remember in the last series, which was just an overview, that uh, the book of Mark can be split into two main sections. There's the first half, roughly chapters one to eight, that's all about who Jesus is. It's about telling his identity, and we sum that up with that he is the king. He's the king of the kingdom of God. Then there was this transition point in the middle where he asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter replies for on behalf of all of them, You are the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the promised one, you're the anointed one. And then in the second half of the book, roughly chapters 11 to 16, we see how Jesus inaugurated his kingdom and he did that through the cross. Now, you may remember also that in addition to it being split in this way, one of the clues to its major organizing setup was the geography that Mark arranged it so that the stories he tells in the first half are all happening in the northern part of the country in Galilee. Uh, Galilee is the area where the Sea of Galilee is. And remember, many of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. That's where they were fishing. Nazareth, where Jesus was from, was in that area. So that was kind of his home territory. And all of that happens in the, uh, all the stuff of the first half happens in that area. Then in the transition point where it's talking about the disciples coming to the realization that Jesus is the Messiah, that happens on the way to Jerusalem. So the geography here is Galilee. Then the transition point is the traveling on the way to Jerusalem and they're going south 
the setup of that area was Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, in the middle, and then Judea in the south. Judea is where Jerusalem was. Then the second half, all that happens in the area of Jerusalem. So just remember to hold on to that, that the geography is a key to the way that it's organized. Then the other thing that we looked at is, uh, and again, if, you, if this doesn't look familiar, you'll want to go back and watch the earlier messages in this series, Things Set Right. But basically, this is a, is a infograph that explains the theology of the entire Bible. And the only thing that I want you to notice right now is that there are these patterns. And we said these vertical lines are God intervening across history, uh, beginning at creation and ending in the establishment of the kingdom of God. And then remember that we said that the kingdom of God is pulled back into our time that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God and will return again in order to bring it into its fullness. But what we are experiencing now is this kind of overlap where the kingdom of this world is still going and the kingdom of God has started, but there's an overlap and that's what's going on right now. And that churches are supposed to be little enclaves of the kingdom of God, a little bit of heaven pulled back into the here and now. But the main thing that I want to just remind you of from this is that there is a pattern that's established. And as you read the scriptures, remember last week we said that's one of the reasons why it's so important to become familiar with God's word, because then you'll be able to recognize his work. You'll be able to see the patterns. You'll be able to pick up on those clues. And what we're seeing here is that there's constant interaction. There's constant in uh, intervention from God into the affairs of people. All that to say that there are clues that you can pick up on as you're reading through this introductory section, these first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Mark, and I want to help you to identify them. So let's start with that first section. And the first section happens, remember the geographical Clues mostly in the wilderness, in the wilderness. John the Baptist shows up in the wilderness. The prophecy from Isaiah is about a voice crying out in the wilderness, and that was talking about John. Jesus goes to John in the wilderness to be baptized in the Jordan River. Then Jesus is in the wilderness for a time of testing. And the thing that I want you to notice is that the wilderness is a place of testing and preparation. Those, those patterns that are repeated, whenever the wilderness comes up, it is a time of testing and preparation. So look for the geography. Where are these scenes happening in the Gospel of Mark? And that'll give you a clue as to what's going on. Because the whole opening section has to do with the wilderness, that's cluing us in that just like in these other times throughout the scriptures, this is a time of testing and of preparation. Then the other thing that Mark does is he he sets the scene, he tells you where they are, and that gives you a clue that this is a new section. Then at the end of that section, he almost always provides some kind of summary or concluding comment. And in that first section, 
it happens in Mark 1.15, where it sums up Jesus' teaching. The time promised by God has come at last. He announced the kingdom of God is near. In other words, God is going to intervene and he's going to set things right. And how do we know that that's happening? Well, the time in the wilderness was a time of preparation and of testing. Jesus passes the test. The preparation is ready. And now he's saying the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Then the next section is kind of a little anomaly because it's the calling of the disciples and Jesus' invitation. They were all fishermen in, this, in these scenes, four fishermen. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And I'll throw, I threw that in there just to remind you that in the midst of that, the first thing that happens, time of preparation and testing, Jesus announces the kingdom of God is at hand and he invites others in to be a part of the kingdom and to help spread the news of the kingdom. And he will, and he to this day, turns his followers into fishers. He says, when you follow me, I will make you become, and remember I picked this kind of odd wording because it just shows that this is something that God does with his followers. I will make you become fishers of men. Then the next section, remember geography indicates that there's something new. It's the next section. In Mark 1.21, it says, Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was one of the towns that was near the Sea of Galilee. It's up there in Galilee, and this was a home base of operations for Jesus for this phase of his ministry. And the the very next thing in that same verse, Jesus does, when the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. And in this whole section that begins with Jesus going uh, to his home base of Capernaum, we see Jesus, and we already talked about this, teaching, healing, and praying. Teaching, healing, and praying. He's sharing the truth. He is intervening to make things better and make things whole. And he is getting alone to commune with his heavenly father. He's teaching, healing, and praying. And throughout that whole section, we see him doing things that are going to confirm that he is that son of God who has come and that he is the Messiah, just as Mark summed up in chapter one, verse one. So in this whole section, what we see Jesus doing is his actions are confirming his identity. Jesus' actions confirmed his identity. He goes in and he teaches with authority. He heals people and he prays. Now, there's a theme that happens throughout this section, and this is kind of the underlying theme of what's going on. Jesus is doing all of these things that confirms his identity as the anointed one, as the Christ. But there, there's a constant refrain where he's telling people, don't share, don't tell what's going on, don't 
uh, don't spread the news, which seems kind of odd, but then in the conclusion, you understand why. Here's an example. In Mark 144, it says, don't tell anyone about this. He's healed someone. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you that this will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. So whenever a person was healed, they would present themselves to the priest and the priest would confirm the healing so that they could re-enter society. So that's what's going on here. But he says, don't spread the word. Don't tell anybody. Why? Why would Jesus do that? In verse 45, the next verse, it says what actually happened. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. Jesus says, let's just keep this quiet. The man says, I'm going to go and tell everyone. But then the result, and this is the summary. Remember the section begins, we're in Capernaum. That tells us that this is a new section. All these things happen for the most part in there. And then he spreads and starts traveling around Capernaum, or I'm sorry, uh, traveling around Galilee. And because this man spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened, verse 45, as a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. Just think if somebody showed up in our town and he or she could heal cancer. Think of all the people that just from this area would flock to that person. Then the word spreads and that people would travel from all over the world if they could, if there was somebody who could heal cancer with a word or a touch. So that's what's happening. All of these people are hearing that Jesus is able to heal. And so he's drawing people from all over. Uh, then after traveling around Galilee, the next section begins. It begins in Mark chapter two, verse one. Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later. News spread quickly that he was back home. So New location, back to Capernaum, started in Capernaum, traveled all over Galilee, back to Capernaum, new section. And in this section, Jesus is constantly being asked by the religious authorities and others, why do you do this? Why do you do this? Why do you do this? Who do you think you are? What allows you to do this? And his authority is being challenged because he's doing things differently than what people have expected or people have been taught. And so in this passage, what's happening is Jesus' identity is affirming, is affirmed by his authority. Jesus' identity affirmed his authority. So because Jesus is the anointed one, because he is the son of God, because he is God in the flesh, then he has the authority to do these things and to make these changes and to decide how he's going to manage things. And he's being challenged on that. And he's affirming his identity by saying, I have the authority to make these changes. So let's talk just a second about authority. What authority, how authority works. Well, God loans us his authority. Any authority that people have is on loan from God because it all belongs to God. Why? For the benefit of those under our authority. 
So often, people use authority, use the power, use their position to benefit themselves. But God gives us authority, power, position, leverage over others in order to use it to benefit those under our authority. And that's what's going on here. You'll see, if you read through all of those different scenes in this in chapter two into chapter three, is Jesus using his authority for the benefit of others out of a sense of compassion. And then there's the summary statement. So it starts, we've returned to Capernaum. Then there's a summary statement at the end telling what's going on. And this is really interesting. Verse six of chapter three, at once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. See, what's happening is Jesus is asserting his authority because of who he is, his identity. But the people who have power don't like that, don't want to see that, and as a result, end up plotting against Jesus. So, I want to focus in on that passage that we read. This is Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. I highlighted notice there because so often a spirit of generosity and compassion just begins with noticing, with being aware. And we've talked before how the idiom for a generous spirit in the scriptures are open eyes. Uh, A person who is generous is going to have open eyes to see the needs around them and will then, of course, do something about it. So the first thing we see is Jesus noticing. It's so easy to get wrapped up in our own stuff that we don't see what's going on around us. Jesus comes into the synagogue and he noticed the man who had a deformed hand. He had a crippled hand. Verse 2, since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they were planning to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. They planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Now, here, think about this for just a second. Jesus goes in and he notices someone who is in need. The concern of his enemies was to watch Jesus in order to accuse him. They didn't care about the person who was suffering, the person who was in need of healing. Their concern was with their own power and somebody who is challenging that power and authority. So they're watching Jesus, not to take their cue from him, but in order to make an accusation against him. So Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. Now what's going on here? I think that what uh, Jesus noticed the person who had a need and now he's going to bring him up in front of everybody in the synagogue because what he really wants is for them to notice that as well. Their eyes were on him watching to see if he was going to break some religious rule that they had come up with. But he wants to take the focus off of that and put it on the person 
who is in need. So he brings him up and puts him in front of everyone so that they can be face to face with the need, with the suffering, with the healing that needs to take place. Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? God had established this day of rest, a day to set aside, to uh, cease working. And he's saying, what's the purpose? And they've already had several conversations and conflicts about the Sabbath. Jesus has been, again, pointing people away from just strict religious observance to care and concern for the people. And he's saying, what's, what's the purpose of this? Is it to tick off some, some check marks of, I did my religious duty? Or is it for the benefit of others? Is it for doing good or is it for doing evil? And he then says a parallel. Is it a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. He's saying, look, here's, here's a choice I'm presenting to you. But they won't answer him. They don't have any answer. Look at the response that Jesus has. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. It's very interesting when you think about God, uh, Jesus, getting angry. But what, what angers him? It's the fact that there's a lack of compassion, that there's a lack of concern and care for others. And so he's saddened by their hardness of heart. They just won't listen. They won't be teachable. They won't be compassionate. So then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. He was healed. He was made whole once again. A couple of observations about this. I think it's interesting that Jesus (laughs) is kind of... um, uh, very, uh, very strategic. They are acu- they want to accuse him of healing. So you know, if he holds the person's hand or touches his hand or something like that, then they could maybe accuse him of doing work on the Sabbath. But instead, he tells the man to just hold out his hand. So he's just making a movement. He's not doing any work. Jesus isn't doing any work, but he tells him to hold out his hand. And in the process of doing that, the miracle happens. The hand is restored. The man is made whole. And I just think that that's great because they, he didn't give them anything to accuse him with. They didn't, he didn't give his enemies any ammunition, but he still accomplished the mission of healing that person. So I just want to take a, a second, an aside right now and say, whatever situation that you're finding yourself in, as you look back on your history, as you look back on the things that you've done, the things that you feel guilty about, the past that you would like to stay in the past that you don't want brought up again, that the stories that you don't want to tell, stories that you hope no one finds out. There, there's a sense when you come to Jesus that you're wondering what his approach to you will be. And I think it's very clear from this passage and the whole testimony of scripture that his first response to you is not condemnation, but compassion. Not condemnation, but compassion. In fact, Jesus 
whole purpose in coming was so that he could offer his life as a sacrifice for your sins, for my sins, for the sins of the world, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be the recipients of his compassion and mercy and grace and be adopted into his family, be restored, be made whole, healed from the inside out and be a part of his family. And so if there's been anything or any reason why you have been hesitating to come to Christ, hesitating to commit to turn over your life to Christ, hesitating to follow him because of something in your past and wondering, can he really forgive me? The answer is yes. His first response to you is not condemnation, but compassion. And so I will encourage you to say yes to that offer of healing. Yes to the offer of forgiveness. Yes to the offer of compassion. To commit your life to Jesus. To say yes to him. If you are watching on a church online platform, there'll be a way of indicating by raising your hand, uh, just clicking that button that says, I'm saying yes to Jesus. Anywhere you're listening or watching, you can text the word yes to our church number 603-225-2550. And that's doing the same thing. What are you saying yes to? His forgiveness. You're saying, yes, I want you to be my savior, my rescuer, my redeemer. I want what you did on the cross to count for me so that my sins can be forgiven and I can have a fresh start and a clean slate before God. You're also saying yes to his lordship. Just as Jesus invited people to follow him, his invitation is ringing throughout the ages to you right now. Follow me. Commit your life to me. Follow me. Turn your life over to him. Allow him to be the Lord and master to call the shots in your life. When you do that, he's promised that his forgiveness will extend across your entire life and that his lordship, his leadership is available to you day in and day out from that point forward. His first response to you is compassion, not condemnation. And then here again is the summary statement for this passage. At once, the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. They had authority and power, and they didn't want to surrender it. They were so concerned about maintaining that authority that they would participate with basically their enemies. These two groups were diametrically opposed most of the time. The only thing that they would agree on was that they wanted to get rid of Jesus because he challenged their authority and power. The Pharisees were known for their piety and the supporters of Herod took a very political approach to their faith and to their lives. And they were at different poles in many respects, but they're going to come together because their authority was challenged and they want to condemn Jesus. So the question becomes, how are we going to respond? When we see needs, when we see people who don't perhaps deserve help, but need help. When we look at ourselves and we look at our brothers and sisters, are we going to first respond with condemnation or respond with compassion? 
Are we going to wait to look to see how we can accuse, how we can, how others are messing up? Or are we going to come into the situation looking for ways to help? Because compassion results in action. Jesus saw the person. He wanted others to see the need. And he wanted to see a response of compassion and help. And instead, And he takes action by healing. We as his followers are going to do the same kind of thing. We're going to be looking for ways to show compassion rather than pronouncing condemnation. And that compassion is always going to result in action. So here's my challenge for you and for me this week. To keep open eyes for people that need help. Ways that we can show compassion and take action, and then take an action rooted in that compassion this week. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that when you look down on us who were so deserving of condemnation, that your response was instead to show us compassion, to extend grace, to offer forgiveness. May we, because we have been forgiven, because we have been healed, because we have been the recipients of the gift of your mercy and grace. As we encounter others, may we extend that same kind of love, same kind of compassion, same kind of grace. Show us how we can help to set things right this week and help us to focus on loving others and leaving the changing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.